It's the end of the 19th century. The church is now 70 years old. George Q. Cannon, a member of the First Presidency, returns to Hawaii for the first time since his mission nearly 50 years earlier. What he finds there is next in Chapter 6, Our Wish and Our Mission. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us is Matt Groh, Managing Director of the Church History Department. Thank you, Matt, for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, Matt, this chapter takes us to many different locations. We're in New Zealand, we're in Germany, we're in the United States, we're in Canada, and then we also have this great trip out to Hawaii. If we just take a step back for a moment, what were some of the challenges in researching, writing, editing, and producing this volume, which has to try and be so global? Yeah, it is a real challenge to figure out how to tell the history of the church in this era. I think that Volume 3 of Saints is probably the era that's least well known. So in Volume 1 is the founding era, is Joseph Smith. Volume 2 is the pioneers, it's territorial Utah. Of course, we learned a lot through Saints Volume 1 and Volume 2. But this era of the very late 1800s, the first half of the 1900s, is really when the church begins to internationalize on a really significant scale. And so to figure out how to balance all the voices, to figure out how to balance all the stories, to find the story of the church, the story that would be most interesting and most useful for members today was a real challenge. And I loved being just a little part of Volume 3, because for me, it's so fascinating to follow the story of the church to New Zealand and to Hawaii and to Europe and all over the globe. And one of the things that we really wanted to do in Saints was to tell that global story, to help people understand that in the 1800s, the church is already global, that that aspiration to take the gospel to every kindred tongue and people has always been with us, right? And one of the things that was most enlightening to me through the saints process, as we looked at this period of the late 1800s, early 1900s, and that we see particularly in this chapter, is how important the Pacific was to the church. I mean, we think about the church in the late 1800s, and we think about people in Europe converting and moving to the United States, moving to Utah. But so often in the past, we haven't told very well at all the story of the miracles that are happening in the Pacific, in Tonga, and in New Zealand, and in Hawaii as thousands convert to the church, and there are real strongholds in the church all across the Pacific. I will say when I started reading volume three, I was wondering what it's going to be about. (laughs) You know, when you mentioned in the first one, it's very obviously the initial restoration of the gospel. Volume two, it's very focused on crossing the plains. And so I was like, what is even going to happen? But, you know, you're talking about the global nature of the church and really telling the story through these different places and these people that are new to me is so compelling. I think it's such a great way to tell the story of the church and the history of the church in this time. I think that most people are just going to be blown away with how much they can learn about the church. We could take volume three out to people who have spent decades studying church history, and they will learn things in every chapter. We haven't focused on this era as much as we should have, and the stories, I think, are just terrific. In this chapter, it's so exciting. We're traveling 
in a lot of places around the world. And we finish Harini Waanga's story. And by all accounts that we have, it seems like he's been very successful in proselyting and in gathering family history records, which I found so fascinating that these people that are members of the church and that he's teaching, they have never seen a temple. They won't be able to go to the temple for themselves or for their ancestors. And yet here they are just trusting and demonstrating this incredible faith by sharing their names to be taken back to Salt Lake. I just found that incredible. And Matt, we would just love to know how will these types of stories like Brother Waanga's be of interest to readers? Well, I think it tells a very, a story of a very universal impulse, the impulse that I think crosses so many cultures to be connected with our ancestors to be interested in their salvation and what's going on with them in the afterlife. And you can see how deeply that resonated with Harini Wahanga when he joined the church and he moves to Utah. And then he's sent back to New Zealand on a mission. And it's a really interesting mission because it's not a mission primarily to proselytize, although he's doing that, but it's to gather family history records. And I think that that's another really exciting thing about this era. It's only in 1894 with President Wilfred Woodruff in a story that we tell a little bit earlier in Saints that Latter-day Saints come to understand that our goal, our aspiration is to be sealed to our lineal ancestors. And of course, that idea had existed before, but it was really clarified by President Wilfred Woodruff in revelations that he receives in the 1890s. So this is an era in which genealogical interest is just exploding in the church. And you see that in this impulse to send Brother Wahanga back to New Zealand to gather names, to gather the information that he needs to then bring the information back to Salt Lake and do the temple work. I think it is such a universal impulse. I mean, it just seems across so many cultures, this interest in our ancestors, this connection we feel with them. And I think that's what we see in his story. I think that's a really great point, Matt. And if we look at the example of New Zealand here with Brother Wanga going back, he's also very successful and he's able to build bridges that some of the American or Anglo missionaries aren't able to do. And so it's great, as you said, read about this period of church history that many of our readers are not going to know very much about. Yeah, and I think that's a great point that as the church begins to globalize, one of the stories of volume three is how local leaders across the globe begin to take on responsibility and how that is absolutely critical for the church to really grow and succeed in a place is to raise up generations of local leaders. And you can just see in, in this story how Elder Wahanga is able to go to people that the American missionaries are not going to have success with. I think we still see that in the church today, that oftentimes people going to their own culture with the message of the gospel is critical to the growth of the church. My son is going to Bolivia next week, and he's been visa waiting in Portland, and he just found out he's going to Bolivia. And there's been hardly any American missionaries who have gone to Bolivia for a long time now. And so, of course, the, that mission, all the leaders in the mission are going to be Bolivians and, and other South Americans. I think that's just a really great thing for my son to be able to go to a mission where he's going to be trained by, of course, people who not only speak the language in a native way, but also have that understanding of the culture and how to work within that culture to teach the gospel. 
Wow, how exciting. But yes, you're right. It's that cultural knowledge and awareness can really be of immeasurable value. And it doesn't really matter how talented you are as a missionary. There's something special about preaching the gospel to your kin, to to people of the same culture. Well, and we don't have time to get into this too much. Our readers will know from reading the chapter A similar thing happened with John Witzow, who was called as a missionary, where he was going to school in Germany, and he just got to visit a lot of his mother's kin. And he mentions, it's so wonderful to be back here. And you would just feel such a connection to your family and to your cultural history and and things like that. So it is really meaningful. I'm glad that that's a theme in this chapter. Yeah, I think the Witzow story is great because in volume two, we follow his mother as she is converted in Norway. We follow her to Logan, where she raises John and his brother. We follow then John as he grows up. And then we're going to continue following them throughout volume three, as John becomes a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, and as he and Leah serve missions across the globe. And this first mission that John is called on is is so interesting, because he's going to graduate school in Germany. And church leaders say, you know, you'll have some extra time on your hands. (laughs) You've got a young family and you're going to be living in a foreign land and you're going to be studying. But we're calling you as a missionary, too. And so he takes on that responsibility. I think it's such an amazing example. It made me think about my graduate school days. I went to the University of Notre Dame and there were a number of us Latter-day Saint students there pursuing law or business or PhDs in this or that. And I was always so impressed by those graduate students who went there and just did what they could to not only raise young families, which a lot of us were, not only to keep up in your schoolwork, but also take on church responsibilities and say, I'm here, I'm going to do what I can to build the church, build the kingdom. So I think stories like John Witzow, people who are in school, can relate to all the different responsibilities and then Of course, we all have to balance those with doing what we can to to serve in the church. For many of our readers today who have gone to university in these kind of situations, they're going to be able to relate to instances such as this. They're going to be able to relate to the John Witzers, whereas perhaps some might struggle to maybe relate to crossing the plains. It almost seems like a completely different world, but the idea of trying to live the gospel in an intellectual environment and balancing the demands I think some of our modern readers are going to say, oh, yeah, I've had that same experience. And here we have in the text a really great story of one of the many thousands of Latter-day Saints who've trodden that path in the past. And one of the really interesting things to me is how tightly these generations are intertwined together. So you have John in this more modern setting pursuing a graduate degree in Germany after he's been to Harvard. This feels very modern to us, but he's there with his wife, Leah, and with Leah's 17-year-old sister. And then Leah and Lucy's grandmother, Lucy Bigelow Young, comes from Utah to live with them. And Lucy Bigelow Young is one of Brigham Young's wives, right? And so, so the crossing the plains generation is right there as John and Leah and Lucy are pursuing their own goals in Germany. And it's just a great example of how how these generations are intertwined and how, for John, how near the Crossing the Plains experience was. Thank you for that, Matt. Well, let's change direction for a moment and head over to the sunny climes of Hawaii, where we are reading about George Q. Cannon. 
At the time, he's a counselor in the First Presidency. Matt, what do we know about the state of the church in Hawaii at this time? Well, George Buchanan has seen the history of the church in Hawaii from the very beginning. He'd been called at age 23 to serve a mission in Hawaii in the 1850s. And initially, George and his companions had focused on Americans living in Hawaii. And that hadn't gone particularly well. And then there came a moment where George Buchanan, and he recounts this experience in this chapter, where George Buchanan says, we really should focus on Native Hawaiians. We need to take the gospel to them. And this is part of a movement that's happening in the 1850s, where really for the first time, missionaries begin to preach the gospel to people who aren't white Americans, white Europeans, but really think about what does it mean to take the gospel cross-culturally? And George Buchanan and his companions begin to have amazing success. Native Hawaiians begin to convert to the church, begin to be missionaries themselves. And so Hawaii becomes a real strength for the church. And George Q. Cannon always retains this love for the Hawaiians. People who have served a mission, I think, can relate to this. There's always that special kinship that you feel with the place that you serve your mission. And for many, many years, George Q. Cannon serves alongside Joseph F. Smith who was also an early missionary to Hawaii. And at times when they needed to send coded messages to each other, when church leaders weren't sure if they could trust a message through the mail, George Buchanan and Joseph S. Smith would write letters in Hawaiian to each other because they knew that no U.S. Postal Service employee was going to be able to read that. And so they kept this interest in the language alive. And toward the end of his life, George Buchanan then goes to Hawaii, he returns, and you can just feel this special connection he has with the place and with the language and with the people. And I love the sense of nervousness that you sense in George Buchanan as he thinks, I'm going to have to speak in Hawaiian. <laughs> These people remember me when I was a missionary, when I was really, really good at writing and speaking Hawaiian. And yeah, Joseph F. Smith and I, we can kind of write back and forth, but it's not the same. Right. You know that his language skills have just atrophied over these decades. And it's just this great moment where he feels as if his capacities in Hawaiian are magnified and the gift of tongue comes. And he speaks in a way that the Hawaiian people can feel and understand. And he speaks with a fluency that surprises him. And they think, wow, you're as good as you were as a missionary, and he knows that he's been magnified. For me, that was one of the great moments of this chapter. One of the, I think, the great stories we have in Latter-day Saint history is just this special connection between missionaries and the places they serve and the people whom they serve, and that connection and how it goes back and forth, sometimes over many, many decades. I think you're right. I think those who have served missions or even those members who've had that relationship with a missionary, maybe they've been yeah. taught the gospel by them or brought back into activity or whatever. There is a special bond that exists between a missionary and the people. Yeah. And we're going to come back to Hawaii in the chapter. We're going to come back a few times and, and see the changes over the decades. But this is just a really nice moment, a really positive, uplifting moment to see 
things have changed, but the people have grown in faith. And we can only imagine how George, the astonishment and the delight that he had to be there with them again and to see multi-generations of Latter-day Saints after almost 50 years after having served there. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's also, I, I don't know that we highlighted in this chapter, but I think there's always joy in those reunions as well as probably some sadness, as there are people that you knew who are no longer with the saints, and you love them so much that the fact that they're no longer with the saints, I think there's probably some of that as well. I really appreciated learning about his trip back because I remember this is something that stuck with me in the previous volumes of Saints is his mission to Hawaii and his connection there. And so I just love seeing this full circle where we follow him as a young missionary. We come back with him 50 years later, and it's just neat that so much has changed in 50 years. There's still places that are familiar to him. There's still probably a lot of families that are familiar to him, even though, Matt, like you said, there's some people who aren't associated with the saints anymore. And then a lot of his friends have died, too, which I think would be hard for him. But Matt, we would just love to know more from your perspective, the significance of President Cannon's trip to Hawaii, and what are the things that have changed for him? One of the interesting things is that George Buchanan begins to recognize a new diversity in Hawaii, which is going to become important to the growth of the church there, in which we cover more in depth in some later chapters. So for instance, one of the men he meets is a Japanese man who had joined the church while he'd been studying in Utah. And later, one of the great stories I think we tell in Volume 3 is about a Japanese family in Hawaii who joined the church in the 1930s, are living in Hawaii when during the bombing at Pearl Harbor. So you can imagine the dynamics going on there and remain faithful in the church and are going to help take the church back to Japan. And so Hawaii does become the launching off point for a lot of the other missionary work that's already happened in the Pacific by the time that George Buchanan arrives there that is still going on and that it will be a launching off point for other important missionary work in the future. Well, thank you, Matt. I think one of the takeaways from this experience with President Cannon in Hawaii is the way that people are bound together, as we talked about. And we see here these lifelong saints, we've got this growing diversity, and Hawaii plays an important role in the Pacific. Let's just listen to this quote from the book. I feel today more than ever the ties that bind the people of God together, he told them. Where people come to believe in the gospel and go down into the waters of baptism, they grow to love one another. That quote for me just summarizes so many of the stories in Saints, bringing people together, binding them to the Lord, and helping them to grow to love one another. And actually, this chapter has another really great example of this with Zina Card over in Canada. Here she is as a leader worrying about some of the younger members of the church, the rising generation. But before we talk too much about that, Matt, could you tell us a little bit about Latter-day Saint colonization efforts? What is going on with the church's physical growth at this period? So Cardston, Alberta, Canada is a great example of this. Oftentimes we think of most of the colonization efforts being soon after the pioneers come to the Salt Lake Valley beginning in 1847. But colonization lasts for a long, long time. 
a group of saints are sent to Cardston by President John Taylor in the mid-1880s to extend Latter-day Saint colonies north into Canada. So colonization is an ongoing concern for most of the 1800s. Well, at least in that location, it worked for me. I do have ancestors from Cardston, even my grandpa. Cardston became such a center of church strength. And so many people in the church today, I think, do have connections to Cardston and other places in Alberta. So what we read about Zina, this was interesting to me because she's really young herself at this time that she's teaching. And there's a lot of challenges facing youth at this time. Will you just speak particularly to the challenges facing Cardston youth that Zina is so concerned about? Yeah, I think that we wouldn't be all that surprised by the sort of challenges the youth were facing. Zina is concerned about chastity among the youth. She is concerned about the self-control. She is concerned about how do you teach young people how to distinguish between the standards of the world and the standards of God. And she's concerned about word of wisdom issues. One of the things we wanted to do in Saints is to give a sense of the texture of life in the church. So this is one of those scenes where we're trying to do that, to where we say, what was it like to be a young women's leader at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century? What was on their mind? What was the challenges that they're facing? And of course, every era has its unique challenges, its unique context. And then every era has this enduring challenge over how do we raise the next generation of Latter-day Saints to have the experiences they need in their lives to become believers, to receive their own personal testimonies and to choose the path that we would hope that they would choose, right? I mean, that's a universal theme that runs throughout Latter-day Saint histories. How do we best teach the next generation? One of the particular challenges of this era is the end of plural marriage and what that means for the structure of Latter-day Saint family life. So during the era of plural marriage, people tended to marry younger. There tended to be lots of marriage opportunities, which tended to lead to a lower age at marriage than was true after the manifesto. And so after the manifesto, you have more people in their late teens, early 20s, mid-20s who are not yet married, and it becomes a concern for church leaders. How do we help this generation have those experiences, develop their testimonies, stay on the right path, distinguish the standards of the world versus the standards of the church? And I think for young men and young women leaders in the church today, they're very similar challenges, even if the context is a little bit different. I think your point about plural marriage is really important because in many of these settlements, they are able to grow so quickly because of plural marriage, because they're able to have so many more children and yeah. and we see this rapid growth. And of course, in this chapter and in subsequent chapters, we're going to learn all about the fallout of the end of plural marriage and the ongoing controversy that that brings to churches and to individual families. But right here and now in Cardston, the issue facing Zina is how do we help guide them along the path? And I think that's actually something that Latter-day Saints of any period of time can relate to, is helping God's children to stay on the covenant path, if we were to use the modern phrases that we do. And the programs have changed over time. The language we use changes over time. The specific 
structure and activities, they all change over time. But at its root, the answer has always been, we have to teach them the gospel and help them have experiences where they will fill the spirit. So that's one part of it. And then we have to have a program that creates community. At that time, we were calling that the Mutual Improvement Associations, where young men and young women would have activities, some of which were focused on the gospel and how do I learn to fill the spirit and how do I learn about the scriptures, but a lot of which were focused on how do you create community? How do you help young men and young women have experiences together in the church, strengthen each other to have that sense of community? And right now, the church history department, we have a great team of historians who are writing a history of the young women's programs over time from the late 1860s all the way up to the present. And they've done a lot of research. And there's been so many different iterations of the program and lots of different programs to help young women set goals and lots of different ways that we've structured our activities. But at its foundation, it's always been those two elements. How do we teach the gospel and how do we create community through a program for our youth? And, and you see Zina struggling with those same issues. Matt, I really appreciate how you said this core messaging is the same. And I felt that while I was reading Zina, she says we need to take the youth into our arms and into our hearts. And so it's the same thing. Leaders and parents are to love the youth with whatever they're struggling with. As I read this chapter, it's a lot of the same things as it was 130 years ago. But I just think it's so neat that this is something that she was so focused on and that we can see this legacy of strengthening and teaching the youth. Yeah, and I think it is comforting for parents and youth leaders to know that all generations have been worried about their youth and worried about their youth going on the wrong path. And this concern and parental anxiety and worry of church leaders has always been there for the youth. And for those who are right now struggling through those years, either with teenagers in the home or young adults trying to find their way in life or being a youth leader, I think there is a sense of strength and looking back on past leaders like Zina. And like you said, Shailene, hearing these words of wisdom from them, which are the core message that we continue to hear, but I think it's refreshing to hear them from someone like Zina. I think so too. One of the nice things about Zina, and we see this throughout Saints Volume 3, is the way that women's voices are elevated or how they are trying to be used to tell the story rather than the traditional man delivering lectures. And of course, we do have great men in the church, but I think Zina is just one of many of these very faithful, very committed young Latter-day Saints who's trying to do her part to build up God's people. So, of course, we do, as we finish reading this chapter, come across a new event. That's the turning of a century. With the first 70 years of the church's history now passing us, what are some of the highlights of the first 70 years that you can see as a historian? It's a great question. For me, those first 70 years from 1830 to 1900 really are about the beginning of the Restoration, where you get the core doctrine, the core scriptures, the core pattern restored and rebuilt. And then it's the beginning of us as a culture, as a church, beginning to figure out how to take that to the globe. There's a lot of trial and error along the way, a lot of efforts, a lot of stops and starts, but it's receiving the gospel message and then feeling that mandate to take it to everyone. I love the scene that this chapter ends on. It's a really simple scene, 
where we're in the tabernacle in this January 1, 1901. President Lorenzo Snow has written a message and he has a cold, so his son reads the message. But two things really struck me about the message. The first is that it is not a message to the church. It's a message to the world. Our prophets have always felt a divine mandate to speak to the world. The second thing that struck me so much about the message was that it's an essentially optimistic message. There are cautions in there. There are warnings. There's counsel to the nations of the world to avoid war. But at the core of its message, it's an optimistic message. And it's a message of the gospel continuing to roll forth across the earth. He says of the Lord, he will assuredly accomplish his work and the 20th century will mark its advancement. He ends with this blessing of people all across the world. And he says that what he wants to do is to let all people know that our wish and our mission are for the blessing and salvation of the entire human race. It just feels to me like that's the core of what we're about. President Snow knew it. He knew he had a message for the world because he was a prophet, not just for the church, but for everyone. Thank you very much. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today and bringing some personal perspective and some historical context to our conversation today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.